Well, this evening, we're going to celebrate communion together. And I'd like to have the elders and ushers come forth. We can all be passed out the elements, and then we'll all wait together so we can be served. And then I need one, too, because I didn't grab one. I'm the most important one here. Just kidding. That was a joke. One person thought it was funny. Well, while they're passing that out, we're going to be receiving the bread and the cup. If you are a believer, then this communion is commanded by the Lord in remembrance of him. If you are not a believer, go ahead. You can just pass to the next person. No condemnation from us on that. We want us to be freely participating. If you're not sure then you can accept Jesus Christ right now as your personal Lord and Savior. You just bow your eyes and your head, and you just repeat this prayer after me. You can do it silently between you and God. Lord, I give you my life. I know that you died. I know that you rose again for my sins. Please fill me with your spirit. Lead me and guide me. In Jesus' name, amen. It's just as simple as that. And if you have prayed that prayer, if you have received Christ your Lord and Savior, then you can participate with us. So, the first element that we receive together is the bread, which symbolizes our Lord giving his body broken for our sins. The Bible says, by his stripes we are healed. And as we grind it between our teeth, In prayer, we give thanks to God that his body was ground down for us, that on the cross he was crucified for us, for our remission of sins, so that we could be forgiven by God. And so let's pray together and partake. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you gave yourself for our sins to make a way of salvation to whosoever believes on you, Lord. We thank you and we remember that now in Jesus' name. Amen. And let's partake together. Amen. And now we take this cup, the fruit of the vine, which represents our Lord's blood that was spilt for us. I often marvel at it. I I talk about it a lot at communion. You know, what was the DNA of the Lord like? You know, what was written on there? And yet we know that God became a man. And the Bible tells us all the way back in Leviticus that life is in the blood. And he gave his life. He spilt it for us. And as he sacrificed himself, he did it willingly. He was not a victim. It didn't happen upon him on accident. He was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, always willing to give himself for you to make a way. And so once again, let's pray together, remembering him and his work on the cross for us and partake together. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much. There's not enough praise on our lips that we can give you for the work that you've done. But as each one of us partakes together and collectively as a church, Lord, we give you praise and thanks for this work in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's partake. Well, in closing, tells us that as a church in Acts 2.42, that we're to be given to the word of God, to prayer, and to the breaking of bread. And so we're just faithful to continue to do that work. 
Let's close in one final prayer, and it's also going to be our opening prayer for the book of Deuteronomy. Lord, we thank you that we come to you completed. There's nothing that we need to do to act or to add or to rework your working on the cross, Lord. It is finished, and you're faithful to complete the work in us that you have begun. We thank you that we're saved by faith alone and you alone. And we thank you, Lord, as we grow in your word and continue to learn about you, that you continue to mold us into an image, but that you have saved us. Without any working from us, you did the work and bridged that gap so that when we close our eyes for that last time, to be absent from the body, Lord, we will then be present with you through your sacrifice. So we lift these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 16. We're continuing, as J. Vernon McGee said, along the Bible bus. We go on Wednesday nights, we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. The fellowship has been here for eight years. We've made our way through the New Testament. Now we're in chapter 16 of the book of Deuteronomy. We're going to pick up as Moses is continuing to share with the people of Israel and remind them the statutes, the commandments of God, the instructions of God, as they're getting ready to cross the Jordan and go into the promised land. Moses can't go with them, just by way of reminding us. And so the Holy Spirit is using this time to continue to share with them. And now we're going to be looking at these feast days that the nation of Israel was commanded to keep. We're going to not go into them as much detail as we did into Leviticus and, and Exodus, but we are going to be looking at it as New Testament believers. What does that mean for us? And then we're going to look into how is prophecy, meaning how is the future in advance, written into the Old Testament? How is Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross and his work of redemption for us also mentioned in these feast days? So let's start with, by reading verses 1 through 8. Observe the month of Abib. And keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. Therefore, you shall sacrifice the Passover to the Lord your God from the flock and the herd in the place where the Lord chooses to put his name. You shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread with it. That is the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste that you may remember the day in which you came out of the land of Egypt all the days of your life. And no leaven shall be seen among you in all your territory for seven days, nor shall any of the meat which you sacrificed the first day at twilight remain overnight until morning. Verse 5. You may not sacrifice the Passover within any of your gates, which the Lord your God gives you. But at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide, There you shall sacrifice the Passover at twilight, at the going down of the sun, at the time you came out of Egypt. And you shall roast and eat it in the place which the Lord your God chooses, and in the morning you shall turn and go to your tents. Six days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a sacred assembly to the Lord your God. You shall do no work on it. Uh, The Passover's importance in the nation of Israel continues to this day. Just a little word of warning, especially to a lot of Christians. You know, there, there is a lot that we can see from Jesus in the Passover. There's a lot to be said. I know that's getting a little more popular 
for New Testament believers to have Seder dinners and to, to check those things out. I just want to remind you that many of those traditions are added by rabbis and teachers over the centuries and generations. So uh, if it's not biblical and found in the actual text, it's going to be written into by additional Jewish traditions. And you can even see differentiation in how that dinner is taking place between the different types of Judaism, the different areas that those areas came from, whether it be from Poland um, or that region, whether it came from Spain or North Africa, the areas that those traditions grew up in. It's, what am I trying to say here? It's a little disclaimer. Take all those things with a proverbial grain of salt. You know, we want to see Jesus in those things, and that's the priority. And see, the original Passover itself, every single portion of it is speaking of Jesus the Messiah, which would be millennia in the future for his coming. Even the little details, we may know about the lamb that is sacrificed for the Passover. Speaking of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, we just talked about it in communion. That Jesus was the ultimate lamb. That that is done outside of the city gates. The Lord was sacrificed on Calvary outside of the gates of of Jerusalem at the time. Eating no leaven, not having any yeast in your bread. Now there are some that say as Christians we should also be gluten-free. Because there's no leaven in the bread. That is not the case. The Feast of Pentecost had the loaves, the regular loaves. Let's just keep things where they belong. Let's not, just as we need to be careful with the Seder dinner, we have to be careful making other applications. Now, if you are gluten intolerant, don't yell at me. I'm not saying you have to eat bread either. He who the sun sets free is free indeed. As a Christian, you can decide to eat whatever you want. I I have shared this before. When I get in front of my refrigerator, suddenly I'm very preachy. I say things like, meat for the belly and the belly for meat. God will destroy both it and them. Bible verse. All things are lawful for me, but I will not come under the power of any. Another thing that I'll quote in front of the the old refrigerator. It's not what goes in a man's mouth that defiles a man, but what comes out. You see, I tell you, I preach to the refrigerator all the time. Freedom. Make sure you see the forest for the trees. Because people, they start to look at these, and, uh, these little details and they go off on these weird rabbit holes. That just means a tangent. They go off on a path. That's not what it's talking about here. When it's talking about leaven, a little leaven will leaven the whole lump. It's saying that when you put that little bit of yeast in that bread, the whole bread begins to swell up. The whole thing begins to rise. And so there's a practical application for us as New Testament believers. We're to live holy lives. And we're to begin to be sinless. It's not that we're sinless. It's not that we don't sin. We all sin. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible tells us if you say that you have no sin, you you make God a liar. And of course, he's not a liar. No, it's not that we're sinless. It's that we sin less. We, We go through this sanctification knowing that it is corrupting us. Speaking about diets. Speaking about food and already gluten-free and preaching to the refrigerator and looking at the ingredients. I, I recommend doing all those things. I think that we should be careful with our diets. We just need to realize that when it comes to food itself, it means nothing to us spiritually. It has no spiritual meaning whatsoever, whatever you decide to eat. None. So if you're a vegetarian, if you're not... 
If you're pescatarian, you're gluten-free, whatever, don't think that you're holier because of the things that you consume. That being said, your diet has an effect on you, does it not? Like if you eat a bunch of nasty chemicals with no nutritional value, do you not feel worse? If you're going to eat a lot more calories than you burn, are you not going to gain weight? And should we be looking at what's natural food and not natural, and what's chemicals, what's not, you know, the factory process? We get a lot more um, in the, our modern society, society, we're getting a little bit more careful with those things because we know they have an effect on us, right? But why don't we do those things with our mind? You know, why do we have no filter with what we watch on TV, what we're consuming on our phones? What, we just don't even care all the inputs that come in, there's a calling here. There's an example to us, hey, with just the bread. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. In Philippians, it says to put no vile thing before your eye. Meditate on these things, those things which are good, pure, lovely. Meditate on these things. And then most importantly, not only do we see this call for, from holiness called out of Egypt out of slavery into freedom. Christ had to do it himself. The sacrifice of the lamb that paid the price for the angel of death or the death spirit that came and killed the firstborn sons, ultimately freeing Israel. We are under the condemnation of death. The Bible tells us that if you commit sin, the punishment for sin is death, but that Jesus atoned for that sin on the cross so that we go from slavery into life, Romans chapter 1 through 8 showing us these things. But you know that that's been written since, all the way since Genesis? You know, I, I used to think before I became a believer and studied the Bible that there was an Old Testament God and a New Testament God. The Old Testament God hated everybody, just wanted to smite everyone. But the New Testament God, he loves everybody. I've seen it kind of irrationally put that God is somehow schizophrenic. He has two personalities. Absolutely not. You see, here we're told to keep this commandment. The nation of Israel at that time, excuse me, is told to keep the Passover. And we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that it is always meant to be an example of Jesus Christ. Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you are truly unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our, pacifi- our Passover, was sacrificed for us. You would think that English is my second language today. I'm having a hard time. Jesus is our Passover. So we don't need to keep the Passover because it's fulfilled in Christ. We keep communion. And we had communion tonight. It just worked out. The Holy Spirit's like, Mike, you haven't had communion in a while. You need to do that. And so we are reminded as we keep communion that all these things that were in the future predicted came to pass. They were performing Passover. They thought they were looking back to the time of Egypt, and they were. But they were also looking for the future hope that was the Messiah. We look at communion and we look at the past of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. But we don't always remember that we're also celebrating the future, that he is alive and that he's coming back for the church and that we will rule and reign with him. And so we see that the, the, the Bible is just one long string. It's one long chain, this revelation from God. But they weren't just called to keep the Passover. They're called to keep other feast days Let's read a couple of them in verses 9 through 12. You shall count seven weeks for yourself, 
Begin to count the seven weeks from the time you begin, begin to put the sickle to the grain. Then you shall keep the feast of weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of a free will offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your gates, the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are among you at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. Verse 12. And you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. So there's this overarching theme over and over. You were slaves, now you're free. You were a slave to sin. You were a slave to the world. And you accepted Jesus. He paid the price for you on the cross. He set you free. And now you have a free life. You can do whatever you want, but you are free by the Lord. Now, if you are walking with the Lord and you're filled with the Holy Spirit, he's going to correct you because he who he loves, he corrects. And he'll change you. But you have a a walk with him. You've been set free. I say that over and over because when I became a believer, before that I thought that all Christians were brainwashed and they had no self-control. They, they were, the, all Christians were just in a cult. They were just told what to do and they just did what they were told. As a pastor, I wish that were true. But you all just have crazy free will and you do just really dumb things. And so do I. <laughs> and I didn't understand that he has continued to set us free. The other thing that I didn't realize, this Feast of Pentecost, this Feast of Weeks, is all about joy and celebration of the harvest. I didn't think that you could celebrate or have joy as a Christian. Like, what? I thought your goal as a Christian was to think like everyone else. You do what everyone else says, put your money in the box, and repeat. I didn't think about having joy or fullness of life or reconciliation. And here, we see that this is also fulfilled in the New Testament. This isn't just an old-time holiday that they would keep. That root for holiday, of course, is holy day, convocation, days dedicated to God. But that this was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, which was on that feast day when the Holy Spirit fell on the church. You see, when they were bringing in the harvest... In Pentecost, it was fulfilled when the Gentile, the non-Jews, and the Jews were united in the Holy Spirit. And God unified the church and went into all the world. It was a time of joy. I want to keep moving, and then we're going to spend a little bit more time on this. In verses 13 through 15, we have another, another uh, holy day. Seven days you shall keep. I went to verse 15. I went to verse 13. You shall observe the Feast of Tabernacles seven days. When you have gathered from your threshing floor and from your wine press, and you shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, and the Levite, the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are within your gates, seven days you shall keep a sacred feast to the Lord your God in the place where the Lord chooses, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all your work of your hands, so that you shall surely rejoice." Now, this Feast of Tabernacles is the Feast of Booths. It was to remind them of the 40 years in the desert, of being in the tents, that they had to completely tear everything down. They had to move. They built everything back up. And we saw this over and over again. And 
they have been celebrating, the Jews as a nation have been celebrating this for millennia. I was recently watching a documentary of these ultra-Orthodox Jews in, in New York. And they have this whole community where the majority of the people in this community are ultra-Orthodox Jews. And it's just, it was them celebrating tabernacle. And how, where are they going to put these tents, right? Where are they going to put them? I have to be outside. And it's in the middle of a city. They put them on the sidewalks. They put them on, um, if you had an opening outside like a balcony, they would put them on the balconies. They would put them on the roof. And they will sleep out there for a week. They don't even have synagogue. The synagogue makes a booth outside, and they have synagogue and yeshiva outside. I just found that so fascinating that even in the modern day, celebrating this, this, this feast day, this week. But what does it represent? It's fellowshipping with God. Remember, in the book of Exodus, when they were in the desert for 40 years, the presence of God came and dwelt with them in the tabernacle. You know that this is another New Testament foreshadowing. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. We are tabernacles. We are tents that the Holy Spirit dwells in. The Bible says that we're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And then what did Paul say in 2 Timothy, his last letter before he's martyred? He says, I'm ready to throw off this tent. I'm ready to throw it off. Like he was ready to... Depart the body. To be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord, he would write by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But again, I talked about prophecy and about the future. What does this have to do? We know what it has to do with the Old Testament. We know what it has to do with the nation of Israel. We know we just went through how it has to do with the church and the New Testament. But what about what's yet to come? Well, in Zechariah, it talks about the Feast of Tabernacles, but it's not talking about it in the nation of Israel at that time. It's talking about it with us in the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign. It says, and it shall come to pass, this is Zechariah fourteen 16. It'll come to pass that everyone who is at the left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Answers a question that came up last Wednesday. And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth who do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. If the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come upon up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Verse 19, this shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not keep up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. In the Millennial Kingdom, there'll be a new Jerusalem. Jesus is going to come. He's going to rule and reign from Jerusalem. And we, when we keep this Feast of Tabernacles together, he's going to be with us once again in the flesh. I have never seen Jesus. I have felt the impression of the Holy Spirit. Mostly, I just it's through the Word of God that he continues to speak to us today. But one day we will see him face to face and we will tabernacle him. We will be in the tent together and we will see him and hear from him. You know what's a sad observation that I had though? Why is the nation of Israel back in Deuteronomy chapter 16 being commanded to keep these holy days? Like wouldn't you just want to keep it? Wouldn't you just want to do it? 
because of our sin nature. We, we depart from the Lord. Why do we have to fight so hard to want to read your Bible? Just to, just to read your Bible. You're always excited when you're done. You always receive something afterwards. We always feel better. We always receive a word. There's always some kind of word of correction. The Bible says it will not return void. Why is it so difficult? Huh. Why is it so hard to go to church? I remember the first time I went to church, what a war it was to even go to church. Like, what is it about the word church and a church building that is so scary to other people, to the non-believer, or to those that are coming back? That's because the enemies of Scripture, Satan and the demons, are real. If it wasn't, then who cares? Right? How is it that when I was a, a militant atheist, I had no problem researching Islam or Hinduism or Buddhism, atheism. You know, I was an atheist. It didn't matter to me. It was just religious ritual. But when it came to church, there was opposition. What, what is it about this that there was so much opposition? Why is Israel being commanded to keep fellowship with God? And then apply it to yourself. Why are we having to be commanded to pray? Why do we have to be reminded to pray without ceasing? Why do we have to be reminded in Hebrews to not forsake the gathering together, which is the custom of some? Because we're fallen, we're broken. And I want to add one more thing before we continue. Our young people today, and it's all people, but especially our young people, they are struggling worse than ever before in this culture. Suicide rates through the roof. Depression rates through the roof. The United States has, uses more antidepressants than the rest of the world combined. We're the richest nation on the planet, and we're using more antidepressants than the rest of the world combined. Why is that? Because we were all taught as kids, my generation and lower, that everything's getting better and that we're good and that we have things under control. And, then, and you know what? The parents, you should actually ask us young people what to do. But then we start going through life, and we have opposition, and things get tough. And things are hard. And the, the world doesn't care if it does a good job or not. And meanwhile, 100% of the time, there is a screen around you any given moment trying to teach you that life is better, everyone else is happy but you. And then you wonder, why am I broken and then everybody else is okay? The Bible tells us the opposite. Everybody is broken. All of us are broken. Only God is Right? And we all need to be fixed. We all need to have a Savior. So much so that even the good things in us, as Paul says, that which I will to do, that I do not. And that which I will not to do, that I do. There's a rest, even with those that we would put on a high pedestal and say, these people are the closest to God, they would say, yeah, but no. And so even in these feast days, in this commandment to the nation of Israel, we are reminded we are broken, but God has a plan of a present redemption, our salvation, and a future redemption of the whole world, not just our souls. So with that being said, here comes a reminder in verses 16 through 17. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost, and at the Feast of Tabernacles, 
and they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you. And, and that's how we started. Why are they being commanded? Now, there's three feasts here that are commanded. Four if you do Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But there are more feasts that are shown in the Bible. Now, I told you that we were going to talk a little bit about prophecy. Now, when we talk about prophecy, I want you to see the seven commanded feasts in the nation of Israel. And in every single one of them, we're going to see a step of salvation of Christ's plan, the Messiah, for us. Predicted and shown throughout the scriptures. One solid book. You see, in Passover, we see Jesus' crucifixion. We see that he is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And as his blood was put on those doorposts on both sides and made a cross, showing that by his blood we are healed. And the angel of death passed over. The unleavened bread during Passover, no yeast. Jesus was perfect. He was sinless, without sin. And then he was buried. None of the food could be left over. It all had to be taken out. Then at first fruits, 50 days later, after Jesus' resurrection, we see him rising from the dead, and we see him ascending into heaven and the Holy Spirit coming on the church, the first fruits. I'm mixing first, first fruits, Pentecost. I'm just mixing all things up. But the first fruits and then Pentecost, the resurrection, and the Holy Spirit. Now, notice I have a different color here for the next three. The Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles are all future when we have the Feast of Trumpets and the trumpet sounds, Jesus will return for his church and take us home. Immediately following that will be the seven-year tribulation, the Day of Atonement, where Jesus is going to, rule, is going to uh, pour out his wrath on the planet. But then after that seven-year tribulation and the Feast of Tabernacles in the Millennial Kingdom, Jesus will be with us present, and we will be with him. Now, I want to be crystal clear. How we are seeing the thread, you'll see it written different ways, but the doctrines are the same. So the crucifixion, bury, resurrection, filled with the Holy Spirit, return, judge, and reign with us. If you research it online, you'll see just different um, examples, things shifting here and there, but generally the same. I want you to notice something else. The first four are spring feasts, and the last three are fall feasts. So there's a, there's a gap of time in between. The church age. And Peter, they would say, what are the signs of your coming? Forever the, the fathers have been saying that you're becoming. And is it not so? Peter said, yes, it is happening. And, and we're seeing it prophesied. Prophecy just means history in advance. It's like having a history book. Imagine you had a history book of the Civil War, and it's 1859, right before the Civil War. You're like, yeah, right, this is impossible, until it happens. And you're like, what in the world? How did that happen? For you movie people, you know, Back to the Future, he had that almanac of all the sports. You guys remember that? If not, good. <laughs> but he had the sports, and he started making bets because he knew the future in advance. And the Bible does the same thing. Now we're going to see what seems like a change of subject in verses 18 through 22. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your gates, which the Lord your God gives you. According to your tribes, they shall judge the people with just judgment. 
You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality nor take a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. You shall follow what is altogether just, that you may live and inherit the land which the Lord your God has given you. You shall not plant for yourself any tree as a wooden image near the altar which you build for yourself to the Lord your God. You shall not set up sacred pillar, a sacred pillar which the Lord your God hates. So we're going we're gonna to camp here for a minute. Who agrees that the government should not take bribes? That the government should be above reproach. They should do right things, especially because they're given the power of the authority. They're in, they're in charge. I'm gonna, I like to pick on things that are kind of sensitive issues. Let's take corporal punishment, that a man could be executed or a woman could be executed for their crimes. That is a biblical punishment. But do we trust our government to have a correct guilty verdict 100% of the time? Because we can be very dogmatic. Oh, yeah, the Bible says that we should do that 100%. That's what we should be doing. And then we'll see certain criminals and we'll be like 100% non-negotiable. But do we trust our government to be without bribe? to be without error, that they shall judge the people with just judgment? Do you trust them? How many people know privately of court cases where there was an injustice? How many people know of tickets that you got that you shouldn't have got? Now, all of you are going to agree with that, even though you probably all deserve them. So the question is, the question is then, I have good Christian friends of mine that are 100% against corporal, corporal punishment, against um, death row because the government has been inept and there are many people on death row that are actually innocent. And you say, prove it to me. You can see inmates that are on death. It is the minority, thank God, in America. But they're being freed by DNA evidence coming out 20, 30, 40 years later saying that they were innocent the whole time. So if, if 5% of criminals on death row are innocent and are killed by the government, does that mean that we should keep doing it because that percentage is okay? What if it's 20%? Is that okay? 50%. I am not making an argument pro or against. We're just adding some clarity. The clarity is this. The Bible says very clearly, we are sinful people. We make mistakes. We are broken. We are all broken. Now, America has the best broken system going. We are the best broken government on the planet. We have been uniquely blessed by God. History tells us that clearly. I'm a patriot like any other, but do not allow yourself to be deceived. No man can keep the law. You shall appoint judges, verse 18, and officers in all your gates, which the Lord your God gives you according to your tribes, that they shall judge the people with just judgment. Verse 19, you shall not pervert justice. It's happening. You shall not show partiality. That means taking sides. It's happening. Nor take a bribe. The United States is one of the best countries rated for not taking bribes. You know, we have brothers and sisters here from countries where that is just the norm. If you don't bribe, you're not getting, you're not getting out of things, period. And many people here have been to foreign countries where that is the case. You know, America is blessed. Let's, we're not America bashing here. 
We're uniquely blessed here. What I'm telling you, though, is that people are not keeping the law because they can't. That's why we need a Savior. We're broken. And twist the words of the righteous. Is that not happening? Like, just turn on your television. Pull open your telephone. Look at the, go online right now and see, are the words of the righteous being twisted? Is the word of God being twisted and perverted to this day? 100%. 100%. So what does it say in verse 20? It says, you shall follow what is altogether just, that you may live and inherit the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Israel never inherits 100% of the land because they can't keep these commandments. Hey, I, I want to put in a shameless plug here for America. You know, we get to pick our leaders, but too many in the church, they don't vote. They just don't even give, they don't even give it a shot. It's like, well, you know, our votes are going to be taken anyway. Are you telling me that people don't show partiality, there's perverted justice, that there's bribery? Yeah, of course there is. This is humanity we're talking about. But what I am saying is as a Christian, when you go before the Lord, and you've been uniquely given the opportunity to vote for your leaders, look at all the generations of mankind and how many people are given the opportunity to vote for their leaders. And you're accountable to God for those votes. And you're going to go to God and be like, yeah, yeah, but I didn't, I didn't, it didn't count for anything, so I didn't do it. It says you need to choose, choose, hmm, appoint for yourselves judges and officers in America, we literally get to do that. We appoint the people that appoint judges. We appoint the leaders. And so when it says who the Lord their God gives you in America, the Lord actually gives us exactly who we vote for. So if things are really bad in America, it's, cause it's not because we need to ramrod more laws to change America. God needs to change the hearts of the people of America. That's the only thing that can really change anything. You can write all these books we can all shake our head here and say, don't take any bribes. Yes, we want just policemen, just judges, and just politicians. Oh, yes, we want all those things. But it's just not going to happen unless the hearts of man changes. Now, I want to put the shoe on the other foot, though, for a minute. Are you just? Are you impartial? Are you not taking bribes? If someone comes to you right now and says, hey, I'll give you $1,000, can you tell me a little bit about your company and its secrets? Are you going to take it? Are you willing to turn a blind eye to benefit somebody? Are you making sound decisions? Are you in the word of God? Are you doing the right things? Yeah, 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 but that's different. That's different. How is that different? Be encouraged, though. Be encouraged. All of us are broken. But we have a Savior that is working in our lives. He's working through the word of God. He's convicting. The Bible tells us the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword that it cuts to the bone and the marrow, it cuts to the deep innermost parts, and it reveals the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. It shows us where we're at. Now, finally here, in verses 21 and 22, it says, no corruption in worship. So what was happening at that time in the the false religions around that time, they would literally worship trees and idols. They would get wooden things and whittle faces on it, and that would be their god. They would have trees that they would worship around. A lot of really nasty stuff would go on with that idol worship. And what they're saying here is don't go to the world for the holy things of God. 
Don't bring that corruption into the church, into the synagogue, into the tabernacle. Don't combine those things. Are we not doing the same thing, though, here? If we start to go to the world and bring those things into the church and corrupt the word of God, I like the word of God in this part, but in this other part, I'm going to go to the world and I'm going to bring in what they got, and I'm going to mix them up together. If you take a glass of water, just pure filtered water, not our South Carolina uh, unfiltered tap water. No, I mean like pure reverse osmosis water. And then I go get some mud. How much mud can I put in there and it's defiled? How much contaminants can I put in that clear water until it's dirty? But then when we have the word of God, the perfect pure water of life, and then we want to just take that mud of the world, we just want to throw it in there, mix it up a little bit. Mm, this is better. No, it is not. Get that garbage out of here. You've got to start from scratch. The commandment here is don't set up these things. What does it say at the end of verse 22? Which the Lord your God hates. Why does he hate it so much? Because it destroys us. Because it destroys us. Do you not hate things that destroy your kids? Would you not hate the people that destroy your kids? Would you not hate things that are trying to hurt or maim or damage your kids? I just want to tie it all together. You know, there was an incident that happened there in Texas where those kids were hurt. And if that, if that perpetrator, inspired by Satan, lived, what would our thoughts be for him? Line him up. How dare you? We would have the worst, the worst feelings of what should be done to that person for justice. How dare you? Now, I will say there is some righteous anger in that. What did Jesus say about his children? He said that if you harm his kids, if you cause one of his kids to stumble, that it'd be better for you that a millstone, giant, huge stone, be wrapped around your neck and you thrown in the ocean. That's from the Lord. And he is sinless. He is perfect. So there is some righteous indignation there. So identify that. The hurting of children is an abomination. It should be uh, revolting to all of America. When we corrupt the word of God, when we start to bring those things in the church, God hates it with the same kind of perfect hatred. We need to be very careful. Very careful. And then we need to make decisions on how to stay pure, knowing that we can't do it in and of ourselves. Remember, we can't just keep the word. We just can't keep the law. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and he needs to lead us. How do we do that? The feast days remind us, Jesus, 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 Jesus. As we look to him, the author and finisher of our faith, he does the work. And that's just a perfect bookend to our sermon we began in completion. We began with communion. He's done the work. It's finished. And he is faithful, he who has started a work to complete it in you. So don't stop allowing him to do the work in you. Stay in the word of God. Lean on him in the spirit of God. Pray. Seek his face. Understand that apart from just left to yourself, you're going to drift away from him. And lean into him. And allow him to draw you closer to him and 
allow him to transform you and change you. The same way that he continually continued to minister to a nation of Israel that always rebelled against him, but he always brought them back. Now, we're going to spend the rest of this hour and maybe a few minutes past, as we do every Wednesday night, just praying, interceding one at a time so that we can all agree together in prayer. Lord, we pray that you would lead us this evening in prayer and that we would be growing in you. We do pray for the injustice that's happening in America and in the planet, Lord, and pray that you change the hearts of men to seek and serve you. We pray, Lord, that you would lead us in prayer this evening and that you would continue to transform us more into your image. In Jesus' name, 